Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is sore travail. Uh, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? Look at verse 12. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you tonight. I do thank you for the time that you've given us. I pray, uh, Lord, that you'd use your word. It is the sword of your spirit, of the Holy Spirit, and of the one that dwells within us. We pray, Father, that he would take his sword and that he would do a work in our hearts and minds this evening. Uh, Pray, Lord, that you would uh, give clarity of thought to my words, give power and unction to the truths of them. And, Lord, that uh, all things that are done today uh, would draw us closer unto you, that we would have a submitted heart to the truth of your word. And we'll be sure, Father, to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I have five simple thoughts I want to give to you this evening. I'll tell you in a moment why I probably wouldn't have picked a Wednesday night crowd to preach this to if I was the one that was determining those things. You know, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, we might say this, uh, that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes presents to us a perspective of the world when God is not preeminent. I've heard people say before it is a humanistic or a naturalistic perspective on the world. And I don't know that that's entirely accurate because over and over and over again, uh, Solomon uh, invokes the name of the Lord and talks about God and uh, how God sits over the world and presides over it, uh, talks about how the Lord is watching everything that's taking place, how the Lord rewards those uh, that do wrong and that do wickedly and also rewards those that do good. I don't know that we could rightly say it's a book of the world without God, but I think it's reflective of what Solomon was going through in his life. Uh, Solomon, of course, ascends the throne as a fairly young man. God grants him anything that he desires. Uh, God literally writes Solomon a blank check. And Solomon, of all the things he could have asked for, he asked for wisdom. And uh, the Lord was pleased with this request. And uh, so he grants unto Solomon wisdom, but he didn't just give him what he asked for. He gave him what he didn't ask for, too. Boy, don't we have a gracious God. Uh, there's a lot of things in my life that I've asked God for that He's given me. And there's some things in my life I would have never had the boldness or the faith to ask God for. Uh, but He went ahead and provided them. Amen? And that's what He did in Solomon's life. And so Solomon reigns and presides over what we know as the golden age of the nation of Israel. The borders were wider. The coffers were deeper. The people were happier under Solomon's reign than in any other time before or since in the uh, nation of Israel's history. But Solomon, as he gets older and life. He uh, marries uh, many, many wives. And, uh, you know, we could talk about the reason for that. I I personally believe that probably it was political marriages. That's not to say he was not committing sin in doing them. We're not trying to provide any sort of excuses for Solomon. Uh, But if he was the wisest man in the world, then why did he marry all those women? Amen. And uh, so I think probably they were political marriages. But let me tell you something. No matter what reasons we have for sin, sin still affects us. And it affected Solomon. Pretty soon, those uh, women uh, began to turn his heart away from God and unto idols. And I believe that it was during this time that Solomon pins the book of Ecclesiastes. He began to feel a yearning and an emptiness in his soul, uh, not because God had left him, not because God wasn't sitting on the throne, but because God was not preeminent in his heart. He was not pursuing after God the way 
that he should have been. And so he begins to try to find sources of satisfaction in life. And uh, this isn't my message, but let me just say this. Wouldn't we be a lot smarter if we could read the book of Ecclesiastes, take the lesson that Solomon gives us, and not waste our lives pursuing things that can't make us happy? Uh, Solomon, I mean, listen, he had everything at his disposal he could have asked for. And he goes through a laundry list of all the various uh, avenues that he tried to find satisfaction. He tried to find it through wealth. He tried to find it through leisure. He tried to find it through pleasure. He tried to find it through intellect. He tried to find it through labor. Over and over and over again, he tries these different avenues to find satisfaction. And none of them involved putting God in His rightful place in Solomon's life. And time and again, he comes up empty and miserable. And so he observes the life around him, and as he's sort of stumbling his way through, there are several instances in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon observes something that he finds to be profoundly disturbing. Uh, One of the things, for an example, is he looks and he notices that the wise man and the fool, they both die. And the righteous man and the evil man, they both die. And he looks at it and he says, what's the point in all of it? If death comes for everybody, then what is the point in us living right or living wise? What does any of it matter? Now, of course, we know the truth from the Word of God that this life is not the end of the matter. Amen? There is a life after this, and uh, there is a spiritual well-being that we need to be nurturing and a spiritual walk that we need to be uh, pursuing. Uh, But when God isn't on the throne of your life, nothing looks right. Let me say that again. When God is not on the throne of your life, nothing looks right. When God's not on the throne of your life, it is easy to get discouraged and it's almost impossible to get encouraged. When God is not on the throne of your life, and what do we mean by that? We mean God having absolute authority and absolute affection and adoration in our lives. God being not just our, uh, our, our uh, one, but our one and only, our one and all. Him being our everything, us loving Him with our whole heart. When, when that's not true in your life, uh, you're going to spend your time down in the dumps. You're going to stay discouraged. Uh, you're going to look at the world and scratch your head. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of head-scratching things going on in the world today. And until we acknowledge that God's on the throne, we're not going to find any peace. Uh, we're not going to find any satisfaction. And so Solomon mentions several of these things throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that just bother him and he is troubled by. And one of them is found in the verses that we've read here this evening. And I'd like to just read verses 7 and 8 again as sort of an introduction Uh, Solomon says, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. Now, vanity means emptiness. It means meaninglessness. It means pointlessness. In other words, he's saying, I saw something that troubled me because it seemed like there was no reason for it. And he says in verse 8, There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet is there no end of all his labor, neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, For whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. The thing that bothered Solomon as he looked around life is he saw people that were living lives of isolation and loneliness for no apparent reason, and it led to their lives being miserable and empty and meaningless. I want to preach to you tonight on the function of Christian fellowship. And as I said earlier, if there's ever a crowd I wouldn't preach this to, it'd be the Wednesday night crowd, because obviously you believe in the value of coming to the house of God and fellowshipping with God's people. That's why you're here tonight. But the Lord pressed this on my heart. And I want to give you five things that fellowship with believers provides 
that nothing else in the world can provide. Had a conversation with someone the other day, and uh, of course I would never disclose who, and I, I would never tell tales out of school. But uh, I had a conversation with someone the other day, and they were sharing with me. Uh, they said, "You know, I, I've just I've gotten discouraged, and I just I quit going to church, and I just sit at home with my Bible, and I watch the TV preacher, and that's fine, and that's enough." And I made the comment to that person. I said, listen, you're a grown man. You can do as you please. Nobody can make you do anything. One thing you learn very quickly in pastoring, you can't make anybody, most of the time even including yourself, do the right thing. Amen? And uh, But I said, listen, the Bible's very clear in Hebrews 10.25. Uh, God didn't God didn't say that because He, he just wants to, to uh, monopolize your time. God didn't say that just so preachers would have something to fuss about. You know, the Bible says, forsake not the assembling yourselves together as a manner of some is. Uh, the Bible says we are to uh, instead uh, exhort one another, provoke one another unto good works, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. God didn't say that to give something for preachers to fuss about. God didn't say that just to try to mess up uh, your time and, and, and monopolize your time. And God didn't say that just for you to have to put up with a bunch of cantankerous Baptists, and that's what we all are, amen. But God said that because it's beneficial. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. The emphasis and focus of Calvary was not only that of saving lost sinners, but that of uniting them together in a body, that they would have the support and encouragement one of another. Now, there's many that want to rush to say, well, preacher, that's true, and the body of Christ is a spiritual entity. And I would say this, that as I read my Bible, there's no question that every believer is knit together in a spiritual sense. Uh, the Bible says we're baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ. And I don't believe that's talking about water baptism. I think that's talking about the exercise and operation of the Spirit of God, whereby He places us within the fellowship of believers whenever we're born again. And there's no question to me there is something beyond the local church. And yet, if we place the emphasis where God places it, uh, about 107 times the word church is used in your New Testament, and over 90 of them it refers to a local body. Now, God said that because... He, he means it. And God said it for a reason. And God said it because, and I'll just be very honest with you, because we as believers, we need fellowship with other believers. If we don't need that, why did God institute the local body? And again, not to say there's not something beyond that. I, I recognize that. But when Paul wrote the letters, the, uh, the epistles to churches and the Pauline epistles, uh, he wasn't writing just to vague, abstract groups somewhere out there, but he was writing to a church at Colossae, a church at Philippi, a church at Thessalonica, a church at Corinth. And he was doing this because that's how God intended for believers to gain the encouragement and help and support that they need. You know, when I read Solomon here, I don't know that Solomon necessarily has the local church in mind, but I do think he acknowledged something about the human experience, that we're not built for isolation. We're not. We need one another. And we can fight against that, and we can argue against that. But the sooner that we accept the truth and reality that God has called us as believers to join together in fellowship, and as soon as we can embrace it instead of resist it, the sooner we'll see the pragmatic benefit. In fact, I was going to give you a little short introduction. I'll just tell it to you very quickly. That the assembling of believers together is a scriptural matter. 
We know this. We can study our Bibles, and we know it is a scriptural practice. Uh, the local church in uh, Jerusalem gathered together. Even when God scattered that local church, uh, they gathered together in pockets of believers. When Paul planted a church, he planted a local church, uh, a visible entity of believers that were joined together in fellowship and in cause and in purpose. I'd say that worshiping together and assembling together is a spiritual thing. And that's not to say that people that don't do it hate God. And that's not to say that people that don't do it have abandoned their duty and responsibility. But it is to say this, that the benefit that we get as we join together is a spiritual benefit. Uh, you know, I, I believe that one of the things that the local church is tasked with is meeting some of the physical needs of people. And sadly, government has displaced that role. That's part of the reason church authority doesn't have the authority that it once did, because there was a time, listen, if you got put out of the local body, it might mean starving to death. Uh, now the government's going to give you a cotton a sandwich and you'll be fine anyway. Uh, but uh, there, there is a place for it in a pragmatic, practical sense. But I think we all understand that the, the chief benefit we gain as we gather together is the spiritual encouragement and nourishment that we receive. And then I would say this, that it's practical. It's practical. Now, before you start thinking about how you had to rush home from church and grab a quick shower and eat half of a sandwich and jump in the car and rush over here to get here, and it was a matter of inconvenience, and it's not lost on me that that is the reality for lots of people, I want you to consider these five things that assembling together with believers provides that you can't get anywhere else. Look back at verse number 8. Solomon says, There is one alone, there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet there is no end of all his labor." Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Let me say, number one, that one of the functions of fellowship is the cause that it provides to us as we labor for the Lord. What Solomon was observing was this, that people that don't have anybody that they're working for, they still work, but they're just not satisfied in their labors. They still work, they still exert energy, they still gain a, a paycheck, but there's nothing that it is meaningfully adding and contributing to their life. Now again, I acknowledge Solomon is not talking about the local body when he says this, but can I just say this? Now, one of the things that we get from the house of God is we get people that we can look in the eye and know that we're making a difference in their life by serving God and laboring and ministering in the truth of the Word of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. The chief person that we ought to do everything in life for is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not lost on me that every one of us, hey, if we didn't have another reason to ever lift a finger for God, Calvary is plenty of reason for us to be serving God. But I found this to be true. There's been more than one occasion when it would have been easy to give up. And it would have been easy to walk away. But the thing that the Holy Ghost used to smite me and to bring me into submission was all the people that would be affected were I to make that decision. Now, you may sit there in your pew and think, well, preacher, nobody would notice if I was gone. But you're absolutely 100% wrong. People are watching you. And listen, they're not just watching me because I'm the pastor, but they're watching you. And some of them may be the people that are in this room, but some of them may be people that are outside. And being a part of a local body, it gives us a purpose and a cause and something visible and tangible. Listen, I know we're doing it to please the Lord. I know we're doing it because the way He's going to reward us in heaven. But sometimes our flesh wants us to forget that the Lord is watching. Sometimes the promise of heaven seems a long ways away. Sometimes the judgment seat of Christ seems like a distant prospect. But when we get 
get up on Sunday morning when we're uh, trying to decide whether we're going to be faithful to the house of God, thinking about that little child that's waiting on us to show up and teach their Sunday school class, thinking about that neighbor that we invited that might show up that very day, thinking about that person that always comes by and hugs our neck and says how we encourage them, provides us an incentive. Because we recognize somebody benefits from what we're doing and somebody will be left hanging if we're not where we need to be. Again, not the preeminent reason, but I think Solomon noticed it. He noticed that the people that didn't have something they was working for, their work didn't mean anything. You know, you've probably experienced that in life. I remember when I was working on a, on a public job, and, uh, you know, when you're working, the company, especially the, the lower the quality of job, the more committed they expect you to be. I don't know if you've ever acknowledged this phenomenon before. If you're doing a really important job, they don't have to convince you that your job is important. I had a little job working at an auto parts store, and we would, uh, we would have these meetings once a month where they'd bring us in. And you ever done something at work and thought, this has got to be the largest waste of time and company resources I've ever seen. That's how these meetings were. We'd go in and we'd sit down and they'd look through the bulletin. I guess they thought we couldn't read the, the little circular on our own, but we'd look through all those things. And one of the things that would always be in it, they'd send out an intercompany magazine and they'd, they'd have all these stories about people that worked at the auto parts store that saved the day. It was always somebody changed an alternator when someone was in a bind or someone helped somebody out and went over and beyond. And I remember my manager, and he's a sweet fella, precious guy, still love him this day. He would always, you know, he was 100% in on this thing, and he would try to get us excited about what we were doing. And he would try to say, hey, how many of you feel like, you know, you're really making a difference and this and that? And I was the worst employee that you could do that for. Uh, I've just, I've got a big mouth and, and, you know, sometimes I don't say the right thing. And I remember one day he said this. He said, how many of you are just here for a paycheck? Nothing more. And me and one old man raised our hands. We are. And he, he just looked bum-fuzzled. You know, he, he looked like he had no idea what to say to that. He said, that's all you're here for? I said, listen, man, we're selling brake pads. What do you think I'm here for? And he just tried to awkwardly change the topic and move along. There were some hard days. Not because the work was hard, but just because you, all you was thinking about was that paycheck at the end of the week. That's all that mattered to you. Listen, I've always found it far easier to labor in the work of the Lord. You know why? Because I care about it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care whether you have your brake pads or not. If I'm not there to sell them to you, someone else will be. If you don't want to buy them there, you'll go across the street to some other place. I could care less, and it made the labor arduous. It's not that it was hard. We weren't digging ditches. But you'd just watch the clock tick by, and you'd wait. And it seemed like when you'd get that paycheck, it was never enough. You know, you'd always look at it and think, I, I had to have worked more than this. And it was just a miserable experience. You know, serving God can be that way. If we lose sight of the Lord that we're serving, and if we lose sight of the people that are depending on us, it can be very quickly for serving God to just become an arduous venture where we're just going because we have to. And Solomon says the same way that a person that has no purpose and cause in what they're doing will become uh, loathsome in their work, that can happen to children of God as well. I think that the local body gives us a cause 
And it's not the sole cause. Jesus is the preeminent cause. But let us never dismiss the fact that people are watching us, people are observing us, and us being faithful to the Lord, uh, when we're part of a local body, it builds and encourages that body and helps it to grow. Let me give you a second thing. Look at verse number 9. Solomon says two are better than one. That's pretty straightforward, right? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Let me say not only the cause that it provides, but the capability that it provides. Now, I'm going to blow your mind. Are you ready? Did you know that two people can get more done than one person? That's right. I know. Listen, I rattled your cage just then. Isn't this a fundamental principle we all understand? I mean, how many times have you yourself said that many hands makes light work? And the truth of the matter is this. It's ironic because in the local church today and in, in, in Christian culture, there is this pursuit for extra scriptural entities to be cooperative, to go to vast expanses and intents to accomplish great things for Christ. And at the same time, there is this exponential decline in God's people even assembling together to worship. Could it be that we're farming out our responsibility? Because it's easier to cut a check than it is to have to deal with individuals on a regular basis. I want to make a statement to you. I hope you'll understand the, the, both the intent and the substance of There is nothing that the local church is called to do that can be done better than the local church can do it. Now, there are a lot of extra-scriptural endeavors that the local church is unequipped to handle. But when we strip down the commission of the local church to preach the gospel to every creature, to plant churches, to uh, minister the truth of the Word of God into people's lives, there is no entity, there is no organization, there is no uh, mechanism that can accomplish that more faithfully and diligently and effectively than the local church. Listen... And, I, and I'm not, I, I am anti-denomination. I'm not anti-labels, but I am anti-denomination. What I mean by that is this, a denomination is a means whereby men exercise authority over uh, the local body instead of allowing Christ to have preeminence over the local body. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ashamed to be a Baptist. I'm happy to be a Baptist. I'm proud to be a Baptist. My preacher growing up, people used to say, if you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? And he'd say, I'd be ashamed of myself. Uh, and when we talk about being a Baptist, we're talking about a body of beliefs and doctrine and, and dogma. Uh, but that doesn't mean we as independent Baptists, we are independent Baptists. That's what our church is. And we, we are that, not because we hate Southern Baptists, because we don't hate Southern Baptists. Uh, we're not independent Baptists because we think all Southern Baptists are bad people, because they're not. Uh, we're not independent Baptists because the Southern Baptist Convention is liberal in its theology. It is liberal in its theology, but that's not why we're independent Baptists. If, if the Southern Baptist Convention was, was staunchly conservative and, and sound in its doctrine, and if every independent Baptist I knew uh, was uh, a stark raving lunatic, theologically uh, speaking, I'd still be an independent Baptist because I believe it is scripturally correct to be an independent Baptist. For Christ and Christ alone to have the autonomy and authority over the local body. I don't have no chip on my shoulders. I just got a Bible in my hand. And so I believe that is accurate. I believe that is correct. And I don't believe we need to make apology for that. Uh, but part of the reason that I am that is because I don't believe there is any entity outside of the scriptural construct of the local body that can accomplish and achieve the Great Commission in a more effective way than the local body can. If there was, God wouldn't have planted a church. He would have planted a denomination. 
He would have planted an organization. He would have planted a cooperative program. But he didn't do any of those things. Instead, he planted a local body in Jerusalem. And from that body went forth Christians that planted other bodies. And that is the scriptural structure. We shouldn't apologize for that. We shouldn't be ugly or nasty about it. But we shouldn't apologize for it either. The reason that God did this is because two are better than one. God could have sent us out like a bunch of rogue vigilantes if He wanted to. And He could have empowered us. But He didn't do that. He sent us out. When He sent the disciples out, He sent them out two by two. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. And by the way, I don't think that was Him saying, I'm going to bless you with some kind of great power and manifestation if two or three are gathered together. I also don't think that God was writing a blank check when He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. I think what He was saying is this, the church is the body and I am the head. And where two or three are gathered together, uh, meaning uh, where the only uh, amount of people that can gather together and formulate as a cohesive body are even just two or three. And can I say this? That's not the case where we live. Everywhere you turn, man, there's a church on every corner. And so uh, when He says that, what He's saying is that can constitute a local body if it is absolutely vitally necessary. He doesn't say where one is gathered together. He says where two or three are gathered together. Why did he say that? Because the work of God is to be accomplished, uh, not through interdenominational cooperation, not through man-made constructs, but through the cooperation of believers that are knit together in a local body. Because two are better than one, and they have a good reward for their labor. We can accomplish more. I don't know if you realize this, but we can't do it alone. And that doesn't mean we need to run around and grab on to every anti-scriptural and unscriptural entity. That doesn't mean we need to compromise doctrine. Uh, One, because that would be wrong. But two, because it's not even necessary. We have believers that are of like faith that we can be knit together with to carry out the Great Commission. The capability it provides. Look at verse 10. It says this, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Let me say because of the consistency that it provides. I don't know about you, but I need people to keep me accountable. Accountability is a biblical principle. This is part of the reason Christ sent out the disciples two by two as well. Uh, Because if the only person that I have to convince that I'm right is me, then I'll always convince myself that I'm right. But if I have somebody else that can observe my behavior and say, you know, according to the truth of the Word of God, you've gone astray, you've fallen here then I've got somebody that can help me up. Now, notice it does not say, uh, for if they fall, the one will kick him. No. It says he'll lift him up. See, the truth is this. It'd be great if you and I could do this on our own. That'd be great. Uh, It would be amazing if we didn't need anybody. But it's just not factual. You don't walk perfectly, and neither do I. I'm not infallible. Listen, I don't sit up here ex-cathedral like the Pope. And by the way, he ain't ex-cathedral either. But I'm saying this, that I'm not infallible. Neither are you. Nobody is except the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all need people that can help keep us accountable because the truth is we're going to fall. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to go astray. And we need somebody that can grab us by the hand and lift us out of the, out of the ditch because we're all going to find our way there from time to time. Consistency is not achieved solely through dedication. But consistency is achieved through accountability. I really want, to, I, I want you to get that. Because sometimes we think if we just try hard enough, we can get it done. But that's not the case. 
Consistency is not solely achieved through dedication. Now, if we didn't have to deal with our flesh, if we didn't have to deal with our own selves, then maybe it could be. But the fact that we are infirmed, we are depraved, we are sin-sick. And you say, preacher, I've been forgiven. Yeah, but you still deal with the flesh, just like I do. And because of that, dedication and devotion is not enough alone. We've got to have accountability too. We've got to have people that can speak and reprove us and even rebuke us when it's necessary. Because there's times we all need rebuke. We all need people to say, hey, you're not walking as straight as you used to. We ought to always do it in a kind spirit. We ought to always speak the truth in love. But we've somehow thought that it is love to not speak the truth, and that's not so. It is love to speak the truth, as long as we're speaking the truth in love. And so uh, there's a consistency that fellowship with believers provides that is vital, that none of us will have without that fellowship. Otherwise, Christ would not have planted local bodies. Look at verse 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? The truth of the matter is, we we need the local body because of the communion it provides. You understand what Solomon's saying here, that our body produces a certain amount of heat. But if that heat can't be reflected and compounded, then the cold will overtake it. The cold will overtake it. Uh, when I was talking to this individual about their decision to depart from fellowship with the body of Christ, you know, the thing that bothered me more than anything, and, you know, they're, they're a grown adult, they can do whatever that they wish. I meant that genuinely, and I love this person, I pray for this person. In fact, that was the last thing that I told them. They got angry at me for telling them they were living in disobedience to Hebrews 10.25, and they wanted to rebuke me for telling them that. And I wouldn't allow them to, because I'm not going to apologize for the truth of the Word of God. And I said, look, I, I'm not, they said, you're attacking me. I said, I'm not attacking you. And by the way, this individual initiated the conversation. I was just going about my business, you know, and they wanted to uh, engage in a dialogue with me about it. And so I started talking to them. What, what this person really wanted was me to reaffirm their behavior. They wanted me to say what you're doing is okay and to blame everybody around them for why they were out of church instead of them taking responsibility themselves. I think this, I, I, I can abide somebody uh, being wrong if they will take responsibility for being wrong. You know what I mean? I, I, and I'm just talking personally, if that's okay for a moment. I can a lot sooner abide somebody. And they don't have to admit that they are wrong, but this guy knew he was wrong. That's why he got angry at me for telling him he was wrong. And he tried to shift, it, shift the blame to everybody. It was everybody's fault. It was other believers' fault, other Christians' fault, other churches' fault. It was everybody's fault except the person that made the sole singular decision that he was going to depart with fellowship from fellowship with other believers. And um, the thing that bothered me more than anything in talking to this individual was they were absolutely 1,000% convinced that they weren't missing out on anything by not being in fellowship with other believers. They thought their warmth was enough to drive away the cold. And I've got news for you. It is, it is the pinnacle of arrogance for us to believe that we are so spiritual that we don't need other believers. I, listen, as much as I can be on fire for God, iron sharpeneth iron. I need people that can provide, that can impart some warmth into my life as well. I need encouragement. There's times if nobody encourages me, I'll be discouraged. There's times that if I don't have somebody that can say, Hey, listen, I see how things are. But take courage and take heart because God's on the throne and He loves you and He's ministering in your life. 
All of my warmth has departed and the cold has rushed in. I need somebody that can give me communion and fellowship and that can warm up my heart and soul. Now, before we say, well, you know, preacher, that's what the Bible does and that's what the Lord does, I would just remind you who it was that started this thing called the local church. And he did it for a reason. We need communion. We need people to encourage us. None of us are above that. None of us are beyond that. We all need the communion that it provides. You know, it's interesting. If you study in the life of David, and certainly Solomon was present in the life of David, you'll find that David, whenever he came to the end of his life, he was an old man, he was getting ready to die. Uh, that he, he got, as is very common with people, especially if they don't have you know medicine and things like that, that can sort of fight off the effects of death as they set in or the symptoms of it. Uh, he began to get cold and shiver, and they put blankets on him. They tried to warm him up. And when they couldn't, they brought a, a concubine to him by the name of Abishag. And uh, Abishag's task, there's nothing carnal or, or sensual about this, uh, but they had Abishag lay next to David. And if you study that, you'll find this, that the ancients believed that it literally that her youth was imparted unto David. Now, I'm not saying this is true, but I'm saying that they believed that by sharing that warmth of body, that it invigorated him and shared youth, and we might say this, shared life with him. You know, sometimes when I'm getting cold, I'm talking spiritually speaking, And we all start to get cold from time to time. I need somebody to take a little bit of that warmth in life that God is doing in their life and impart it to my life. Say, preacher, how do they do that? Well, they do that by talking to me about what God's doing in their life. They do that by reminding me the truth of the Word of God. And I won't do that for myself. You understand that? Neither will you. We need somebody, externally speaking, that can provide the communion we need. I want to give you one more thing and then I'm done. Look down at verse number 12. Solomon gives one more thought. He says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We need the function of fellowship. We need fellowship with other believers because of the cause that it provides and the capability and the consistency and the communion that it provides. But we need it because of the cover that it provides. Solomon reminds us of this, that there's strength in numbers. There's a lot of applications we could make about this. I'm thankful that we live in a country free enough now that we're not worried, aside from some lone kook coming through the door and trying to do us harm, we're not worried about roving bands of people coming in and doing harm to us. Uh, I'm thankful our country is still free enough that we can worship in peace for the most part. But understand this, there is a spiritual battle. A spiritual battle that is taking place. Paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a spiritual warfare that's taking place. And you and I both need to understand that God is the one that fights our battles for us. But He has also provided us, other soldiers, other believers, a support system of people that can help us in that battle as well. I need people praying for me. I need that. Now, you say, preacher, won't people that don't go to church with you, won't they pray for you? Well, they say they will. But if I have a choice of who I'm going to ask to pray for me, I'd a lot rather ask one of y'all to pray for me than a total stranger. Because I trust that you love me. I trust that you're invested in the ministry of what God's doing here. And I trust that you're familiar enough to me that at some point through your week, something will happen. You'll see some ugly fellow on TV and it'll make you think of Toby. 
And you'll say, I need to stop and pray for him. We need people praying for us. We need people laboring with us. We need people standing on the firing line alongside of us. Now, you, maybe you can do it alone. And I don't believe that you believe that or else you wouldn't be here tonight. You're here because you do believe in all the things that I just said. But let it always be a constant encouragement and reminder to us that we can't go this thing alone. God never intended it for us. God didn't intend human beings for isolation, and so much the more those of us that know Christ as our Savior. We are knit together, knit together in the communion of Christ, in the union of the gospel. We are knit together. God's not done that because He hates us. God's not doing that fussing at us. And listen, I didn't stand up here not to fuss at anybody. Like I said, if I'm going to fuss at anybody, I'll fuss at all those heretics on Sunday morning. Amen? won't fuss at you Wednesday night crowd. You people love me. Amen? And uh, I know you've heard that before. The Sunday morning crowd loves the pastor, and the Sunday night crowd loves the Word of God, and uh, the, uh, the Wednesday night crowd loves the Lord. Uh, that wasn't a pastor that said that. Amen? <laughs> Here's the thing. You and I need it. We all do. You're not above it. I'm not above it. God knit us together in this for a reason. Let us not fight against it. You say, preacher, how can I respond to this? You know, that's something I always try to think about when God lays a message on my heart. Uh, I, I never want it to just be theoretical and hypothetical. Preacher, how can I respond to this? Well, there's a couple ways. One, you can commit yourself to faithfulness to the house of God. Because God expects it of you. God requires it of you. And you need it, and I need it, and the house of God needs it. Uh, listen, there, there's a place for everything that's planted. There's, there's a plot of land for it to be planted in. And... We need to embrace that. But then one of the things we can do is this. We can do our best. If we are being faithful to the house of God, we can, we can say this. I want to be the person that provides those things in the life of another believer. I want to be somebody that holds people accountable, not in ugliness or in a mean-spirited nature, but through love and compassion and involvement, by touching base with them, by checking on them, by seeing how they're doing. I want to be the kind of person that if somebody falls, I'm not there to kick them, but I'm there to lift my hand down and to say, hey, let me help you up. Let's get this thing straightened out. Let's get this thing worked out. I want to be the type of person that imparts encouragement and warmth into the life of another uh, individual. I want to labor with God's people. Everybody's called to do something. I want to labor with God's people because two are better than one and they have a, a good reward for their labor. And listen, I want to be giving strength and support to other believers. I want, to be, I want them praying for me. I ought to be praying for them. There's people in this room, man, that are facing spiritual battles, big things going on in their life right now. And if you're not praying for them, who's supposed to be praying for them? Hey, you go to church with them. You're the very person that's supposed to be praying for them. We ought to be lifting them up and encouraging them. Uh, maybe there's an area of your life you'd say, Preacher, I've not been as close to people as I should be in the body of Christ. Well, why don't you commit afresh and anew tonight? To, to not Listen, not to step out, but to dig in. And to depend more, not only on the Lord, but on the people that God has placed in fellowship with you.